This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got a great lineup, and we also have a friend of Uptime joining us, Byron Martin, CEO of Technologize, which is an IT firm in Washington State. He's going to be joining us to talk about the implications of the Vestas cyber attack. Um, Obviously, we mentioned this on the show in a past episode just recently when the story broke, uh, but we wanted to get Byron, who's one of our our, uh, repeat guests now, uh, since he's an expert, to really kind of walk us through this, you know, the response, um, the cyber attack and the, his term, which you'll learn today, cyber resilience, uh, which is not just trying to prevent attack, but also how quickly can your organization bounce back once you have been breached. So really great talk with Byron. Uh, we'll jump to that in about 15 minutes. Uh, before that, we're going to talk about uh, air pollution. We're going to talk about India's offshore wind potential and why that still is sort of waiting in the wings. And we're going to talk about uh, Rosemary's Neck of the Woods with the Star of the South Offshore Wind Project, which has gotten some new legislation just passed, which is going to help pave the way for that one. And then after our interview with Mr. Martin, uh, we'll talk about a self-orienting floating wind turbine prototype that's just now being christened and the Save Right Whales Coalition and how that's uh, impacting offshore wind here in the U.S. So before we get going, be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes of this podcast, as well as Rosemary's excellent YouTube channel on renewable energy. So let's get started. Uh, Rosemary, we this crazy article from Al Jazeera, um, they did a great job with it, some infographics and sharing some, some data here on the 100 most polluted cities uh, around the globe. And unfortunately, 94 are within India, China, and Pakistan. Obviously, you know, you've especially... Uh, harped on the idea that, look, we're all in this together. Obviously, you know, if the U.S. has really low or really high uh, renewable energy, that still doesn't help the fact that the planet as, it, as a whole is a system, right? So um, tell us a little bit about this air pollution over there. Obviously, it's a huge problem for the health of so many people who live in these areas. But um, are, are our re- renewable energy targets going to start to make a dent in this? Or how do you view this situation over in India, uh, China and Pakistan? Well, I think the air pollution is really interesting because it's, of course, it's very re- related to climate change because it comes from from burning stuff, um, mostly fossil fuels, although there's a, a lot of um, biomass burned as well, and that also contributes to air pollution, but not climate change so much. Um, but it has that big, a big difference with um, climate change in that one, it's it's local, you, you know, the India and China um, having a lot of coal power plants and having a lot of smog in their cities. That's the, that's a problem that they are experiencing and and we're not. So that's that's one point. And then the other thing is that it's it's now and it's visible and it really impacts every person's life. 
today. And so I think that actually um, it, it's terrible for the people who are in those cities and I, I have um, friends and um, ex-colleagues who lived in very polluted cities and it's a big motivator to to try and leave those countries oftentimes. And I know that all the countries that are experiencing these high levels of air pollution, it's a, you know it's definitely on their radar. It's not something they're ignoring because it's really important to their population. But I, I think that it's actually as as hard as it is for people who are living with it, it's actually a, a really uh, good thing in terms of fast action on climate change. Because a lot of the times, you know, we talk about we've got a lot of action now in developed countries and most of the rich countries have net zero by 2050 targets and developing countries have them a little bit later, um, 2060 for China and um, I think India is a bit later and some other developing countries that maybe don't have a lot of emissions now but are going to in the later half of the century, don't even have net zero targets at all. And so a lot of people are very worried that, you know, it doesn't matter how much that we do in countries like the US and Australia and um, in Europe because, you know, emissions from developing countries are going to be so important and, you know, China's installing new coal power plants still and so is is India. But from my perspective, I think that Local air pollution is going to be one reason why we see change much faster than what we expect now. I, I, I know China is already starting to rein in its future plans on coal power plants, um, partly for climate change and partly for pollution. Um, and we've already seen, you know, electric vehicles. They are being rolled out ridiculously fast speeds in cities where they have a lot of pollution because they just have to. Uh, I mean, there's cities in China where within a year they went from no electric buses to all electric buses, you know. So, um, I see it's a, it's a bad issue for the people that are, are facing them in these cities, but it gives a real motivation to act fast in a way that climate change really lacks. So I actually see it as a positive thing that we have to solve this solution. And in doing that, we have to solve this problem. I mean, and in doing that will also make a huge impact on climate change in the future. Yeah. I mean, it just goes back to that. I mean, people really make big changes in their own personal lives when they hit rock bottom, so to speak, right? And it seems like the pollution levels at some of these places are kind of at a, like a rock bottom level. It's scary. Alan, what's your perspective? Well, I, I think this is a sort of a, a a good problem to have in a sense that it's limited to a, a couple of countries mostly. And you're seeing the same sort of uh, thing happen in, in the ocean cleanup where they're trying to clean up plastic in the ocean, in, in the great basin of plastic in the in the uh, Pacific Ocean uh what they found was that you know a lot of that plastic is coming from a very select few places and what they've done is they 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 focused on those places to cut the plastic pollution in the ocean and now they have this thing called river cleanup which they're trying to capture the plastic before it hits the ocean and it's making a huge difference so in in the case of emissions and pollution if you have a couple of countries doing it you can focus efforts there instead of the whole world. I think Rosemary is right. We can really hone in on these couple of countries and actually make a really big impact in a much shorter time than we thought. And and that's good. So let, let's shift to uh, India's uh, offshore wind resource, because obviously they have a really, you know, they have a large coastline. I think it's 7,600 uh, kilometers. Um, Alan, is this something that we can look to in the future that, you know, is wind energy going to solve this problem? Obviously, you know, all these different renewable energy sources can't solve maybe these, you know, more micro level problems. Obviously, air pollution is not a small problem, but it's a very specific problem. Um, 
you know, India has a lot of, again, potential for, uh, for offshore wind, but it seems like there's a lot of issues getting this to market. A lot of it's expensive. Uh, the ports aren't as developed in India. Alan, what are some of these other issues that are preventing India from really becoming a, a big potential player in offshore wind? Well, India is seeing exactly what the United States and all the other countries that are, are going to develop offshore wind are going to experience, which is you got to bring the, the, the electricity onshore at some point. And there's a lot of population centers onshore. And there's not a lot of places where you can build big infrastructure onshore that's sort of next to larger communities. So the, the problem is not so much of getting well, there's, I mean, there's an obviously a problem with infrastructure and having the ports and then the ships and all the things to go do the offshore wind piece. I think that can happen. The bigger problem is how are you going to bring the energy in? You're talking about a lot of energy coming in as a, as a, as a sort of one big piece and you need to build infrastructure on the shoreline in, in those communities. That's where you're going to get a lot more pushback because the, the wind turbine you can't see off the coastline. Doesn't matter to people, but that big transmission tower and those big transformers that are sitting right on the ocean front do matter to people. And I think that's where uh, all the offshore wind is going to have an issue, not just India. But I think India will eventually get there. It's just going to take a little bit longer. Uh, one of the things mentioned in this this article about uh, India's uh, offshore wind energy potential from uh, indiaspend.com is that they just have no real ability to transport some of these gigantic blades that, I mean, is that true in your experience? I mean, is that India is going to be a lot tougher for transportation, just the way cities and networks and roads are, are set up that it's going to have to be in the ports. It's going to be, have to be new factories built by the, uh, by the coastline. I have unfortunately not made it to, to India yet. Um, though I have worked with plenty of, um, Indian colleagues. So, you know, I feel, feel like a bit of familiarity, but I do, I, I think you're, you're right that it's not, um, it's a country where you can't just expect everything to be there for. If you have identified a piece of land that would make a good wind farm, you can't just kind of, um, you know, book, <laughs> book the turbines and, uh, install them and, um, think that that's going to be the, the end of it. You're going to have to be working to, um, make sure that the infrastructure that you need is there the, the whole way along. And it, it's obviously a very large country and it, it varies from, um, you know, from area to area what the, how it's how well it's set up and how much work you'll have to do, but I don't think it's the easiest um, place to to make a large new wind project. Well, those are big hurdles, and it's interesting. Like right now, obviously, there's so much about offshore wind in the news and just about wind energy in general. And so many countries have these rolling hill, you know, these like Scotland. It's so beautiful. There's these rolling hills and these long roads. And if you need a snake, a hundred meter blade down one of those roads, I suppose you can do it, right? But it's just interesting how a lot of these different countries who maybe want to get in the game, like India, they're just like potentially a lot of different hurdles where like we just can't do it this way that countries A, B, C, you know, D, E, F could do it. Um, we have to find a different solution or we need to build a lot more infrastructure that's going to really set us back a significant amount of years. Because if they, may, they have to make major additions to their ports, to their infrastructure, I mean, that could say like, hey, like, you know, we'd love to meet some of these, you know, goals by 2030 that other countries want to make, but it's just not going to be realistic because we're looking at five to 10 years just for port upgrades and for factories. And then, then we can get going. I mean, Alan, is, is that kind of how this, this looks for India? That like they're just, they have a lot of other work to do to, to really get up and running? Yeah. And, and the United States really isn't any different. 
honestly, we don't have the ports to go do some of these things today. So we're going to be in that building phase. And it's just a question of priorities, right? You can spend a lot of money on getting the ports set up and getting the ships in, but you're diverting funds from somewhere else. And that's happening in my state, right? That, that we're setting aside a significant portion of revenue from the, from the state to go do these improvements. And India's going to have the same issue. Like, do you develop uh, onshore inner solar resources or do you build a port? Great question, because there's only a limited amount of resources there. And that's where the discussion gets really hard. And, and which then leads to, I think, delays. When those when those discussions get to that level and you got those really hard decisions, usually there are years of delay to figure it out because there's so many people with so many aspects and inputs into it. You just can't make a rash rush judgment and start it. Uh, it just takes time to to work itself out. And uh, we're going to find out in the United States here in the next year or so how hard it is. But I mean, India, it's not, um, I'm just, I've brought up a list for some reason. I have a tab open with the list of countries and what their total install w- wind is. And India is number four on the list after, after Germany and before Spain. So, uh, I mean, they've got a lot of wind turbine factories there. They have some strong local content, um, laws that, you know, mean that if you want to have a, a big wind, wind energy project there, you've got to build a lot of it in India. So it's not like they're not, you know, um, it's not a, not starting from scratch by by no, any means, no, no, no. and I know that as blades get longer, turbines get bigger. Everybody is facing challenges with the logistics of of getting stuff in place, and so I mean, to a certain extent, everything everything is local. You know, every problem is is local, but um, I don't think that India is unique in having to solve these problems. And one thing that I have noticed from working with um, a lot of Indian colleagues, and uh, you know, with the Indian factories. As a culture, they are excellent at coming up with really unique, innovative solutions. If there's a problem, and they're going to find a way to solve it. So, um, I yeah, I, I wouldn't see that as being like some huge roadblock in the way of uh, expanding wind industry in India. All right. Well, we're going to transition now to our interview with Byron Martin, who is the CEO of Technologize. Again, they're an IT firm in Washington State. Obviously, we brought him on the show because we wanted to talk more about Vestas's cyber attack, which, again, we reported about two weeks ago that they had a cyber incident. But really, back then, the news cycle, there was very little known about it. They didn't release a whole lot of information. And it was probably because they were still trying to figure out the extent of it themselves. So obviously, since then, uh, they've come out and said that it was a ransomware attack, that their internal systems were affected, that it did not uh, affect the uh, operation of their many wind turbines. And But still, this is a big deal. Obviously, they're a major OEM. And so we wanted to have Mr. Martin on the show to uh, chat through some of those issues and explain the, the protocols. You know, what is a big company like Vestas potentially doing uh, to rebound from this and what changes might all companies who are, you know, every time one of these things happens, companies are thinking, oh, we need to, you know, here's another one. We got to protect ourselves. Maybe now's the time we really batten down the hatches. So uh, without further ado, let's jump to our conversation with Byron Martin. So, Byron, number one, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, great to have you back. Yeah, no, glad to be here. Excited to uh, talk about something I'm real passionate about. Yeah, I mean, we've 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 mentioned a bunch of times that you know these cyber attacks are going to get more and more frequent. It's a such a scary thing. So, um, good to have you here. So, obviously, 
you know, this one with Vestas, this cyber attack, the first reports came out about 12 days ago, November 19th, as of the recording today. And it was a really vague, you know, really vague uh, reporting in the news cycle because I'm not sure if even Vestas knew that much about it at that point. So, you know, I think a lot of people, they jump to the conclusion of like, oh, they're just trying to keep this information close to the vest. But it also seems like, you know, when there's a, a cyber attack, as you've mentioned in the past, that they might not even know the extent of it for quite a long time, um, you know, as they kind of take inventory of what what the damage was, you know, if there's ransomware, what's the situation uh, going through the insurance, all the protocols, all that stuff. So um, first question for you today, you know, when a company realizes they've been breached, um, you know, what happens? Can you kind of walk us through like a hypothetical, you know, step by step? Um, for something like like what Vestas is going through now? Yeah, you bet. And I thought what was really interesting in the reports that Vestas released initially was that they had identified an incident uh, on um, the 19th of November. So uh, anytime that there's a that you, somebody suspects a, a, a cyber event, right? There's uh, we don't jump to conclusions right away. We don't necessarily because we don't know the extent of what's going on. Yeah. So they identified an an incident. They probably had good evidence of because of the symptoms of what was going on. Uh, however, the first step really is just to you know it, is is to make that identification and determine that there is we suspect that there is an issue. And then at that point, you have well, what's important here really is that every organization needs to have a tried and true incident response plan. And, the, and when I mean tried and true, that means you can't just put it on paper. You have to rehearse it. You have to practice it. You have to tabletop it. You have to drill it on a regular basis because it's, it's, one, it's like a fire drill, right? You, uh, when I was younger or when my kids were younger, we would go through home fire drills, which meant, and they had a blast, but it meant jumping out the windows, taking out the screens, you know, what's the process? What do our kids do to exit the home safely and where do they go? Now you have to do the exact same thing as an organization. You have the plan, and I know many have been diligent about developing a cyber incident response plan. Many still need to do that or develop it, but those that have it, there's the next step. You have to, with diligence, do the tabletops and the drills, uh, which at that point helps you to position yourself to, to, to be more successful in a response, right? And I've seen the difference where those organizations have, that have a planned response versus those that don't. And those that have a planned response uh, handle these situations so much better. And there's a lot of missteps that they can make, right? If, if the order of operations aren't right, because, you know, I've chatted about this before that, you know, you, that you might need to call your insurance company like first thing before you act. I mean, I, I obviously I don't know all the, the details there, but, you know, how could how could a company get in trouble by sort of going out of order in their protocol? If they don't have a good protocol, that is. Yeah, one of the big things is uh, the first thing that people don't want to do is panic, right? I mean, the damage is, is done, and, and typically once they've identified it, uh, they don't necessarily know how long the bad actors, the threat actors, have been in that uh, in that network. Uh, you know, if they have an incident proper incident response plan in place, they have a response team that's been identified that they've already predetermined is going to be part of the team, and they have a leader, uh, somebody who's going to lead that response. 
And that person takes the, once it's identified, it should hand off to this person. And this person will help determine the, the, th- the threat level and then organize and get the team together. Because, I mean, Investus, you're talking about a company that's got a lot of employees. And obviously, most of them are not going to be involved in this. But just like on an aircraft, like this is kind of like the exit row, maybe, right? Their little team that they know that if this happens, they get tapped. Well, and, and one of the pitfalls too, a lot of, you know, in reacting to a situation without a plan is what happens, let's say even a simple thing is like, oh crap, I've got a ransomware. Let me shut down my computer or let me shut down my servers. That's one of the last things you want to do. Because what happens is as you do that, you remove a lot of the evidence that could be there mm. to investigate the what actually transpired and how they entered into your organization and how they got in. So you don't want to be shutting systems down. Uh, you you want to, I mean, one, as you mentioned earlier, if there's uh, insurance, you certainly want to uh, contact the insurance organization uh, to let them know, depending on the size of the organization, because oftentimes if it's, if it's a, an actual, determined that it's an actual breach and there's liability there and, and potential financial impact, whether it's in, uh, you know, from a uh, data has been exfiltrated and and there's there's PR associated with that too. Uh, a lot of the insurance organizations or companies uh, have their protocols and processes on uh, that they require in order for you to claim that insurance uh, in in those sort of situations where there may be damages, whether it's loss uh, business or uh, or or cost of recovery, all all, the, all those things. So once it's identified, the first thing is putting your your team together, or not putting them together, but calling them together, and then looking at containment, because you need to contain, and which means you need to stop the spread, stop the infection. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of tools, uh, or it's simply you know, if you have a server, take it offline. And that's one of the things that uh, Vestas did is, I don't they're, they're not shutting things down, but they were taking things offline. So they, they were unplugging, uh, disconnecting, and uh, which will allow them to do the, uh, the, the forensics and the deep dive investigation on what, uh, what transpired and what happened. Now, uh, they haven't released a lot, but I have found that that uh, more or more and more organizations are releasing a lot more detail and information once they know what's going on, because it's not a battle that is uh, we're not all isolated in this in this war against uh, cyber cyber attacks. This is this is something that we are in together on, and the more information that we can share, the the better. In a in a company like Vestas, which has a, a deep IT department and has definitely planned for things like this. What are those entry points? Because it would seem like they would have a pretty hardened system from outside ransomware attacks. Where is the ransomware attacks happening now? Is it still kind of via email attachments or is it a little more complex than that? Yeah, Alan, that's a great question. I'll give you some some general statistics. I don't have the exact numbers, but I there, there's a, a variety of avenues, entry points in which uh, a threat actor can get in. And I, the, by far the highest is email phishing through individual email that are clicked, whether it's a link or an attachment. And uh, human behavior, unfortunately, for a lot of users is 
you know, they click something, nothing happens. They click it again, nothing happens. And then, or they might realize, oh my gosh, uh, this might be bad. Did, did I click? And they stop and wait for a second. Did anything happen? <laughs> okay, nothing happened. Yeah. I'm good to go. Phew, okay, moving, moving on, right? But what they don't realize is just because they didn't see anything go on doesn't mean that nothing happened. Yeah, see, we all grew yeah. up on Jurassic Park where you get the uh, 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 and then you know that you're going to get eaten yeah. by a dinosaur at some point, you know? No. That's how we all grew up. Right. No, the, 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 the which is I, I communicate all the time kind of what we call the hacker timeline, and that is where people don't realize the average amount of time that a, a bad actor is in a network is six months. Yeesh. Before wow. before they're identified, before they even know that something is going on, and this and the scary part about it is it, that six months or more, uh, they have f- almost free reign. But the the hacker timeline consists of, you know, first they get it. it Alan, per your question, it could have been that phishing email. It could have been a, a vulnerable open remote RDP port. I know a lot of RDP has been a major vulnerability for a remote desktop protocol from Microsoft has been a major vulnerability for a really, really long time. Yet it's still used all over the place. And if it's and for convenience, if somebody opens up a port, oh, I just need to remote in. And so that that's another avenue, remote access technologies that allow threat actors to get in. But so what happens is whether it's that fish email or that remote access, uh, that's the foothold, right? That that's the first step in the in the in the process. Well, first step once they've got once they've got in, um, and then once they they're in, they start asking or looking at, okay, where am I at? What or what organization am, am you know have I breached or or gotten into? Um, what privileges do I have? What access do do I have? What information can I get to? And they start asking these questions, and then they turn it and say, "Okay, where do I need to get? Who do I need to be? What access and what privileges do I need to have?" And then they start worming their way up the chain until they have gained greater access. And they, in the industry, they call that lateral uh, movement and privileged escalation. And once they have gotten to the, the most they can gain, uh, the most access they can get to, um, uh, the most data they can uh, exfiltrate, at, and the most damage they can impact, that's typically when they execute ransomware. They, they'll detonate it. After all that other stuff is done, they'll detonate the ransomware. And how, and, do, they, how do they make these, these steps? How do you go from the first person's access that you got up to, you know, the person with the nuclear codes <laughs> yeah well there's once they're in let's say an individual click that 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 phishing email and uh it installs malware and installs a small little program on that person's computer and that becomes the foothold and then that malware gives that uh hacker a remote capability to execute code or to remote into that system and when they're remote executing code, that code that they're executing is figuring out all that information. 
it's doing a data dump of, okay, scans the network, figures out, okay, what's what's running on the network? What are all the IP addresses? What are all the, what operating systems are they running? What vulnerabilities are there currently out there on the network? Because just to basic scans, network scans can tell you what is vulnerable. And then they are, then they, I mean, I'm talking this, they can do Rosemary in a matter of 30 seconds and have a ton of that information. It doesn't, it is not hard work. And so, so the the, so what, once they have that information, that's when they start uh, assembling their additional attacks within the organization, that lateral movement. So is the, is the end goal always ransomware or is there something else? Like you talk about them kind of running around laterally for six months. What are they doing in that six months or are they just preparing everything to then do the ransomware? Like, is there something else or is the, is the ransomware the only real end goal? There's several objectives, and I'll give you the high-level primary objectives. The first and foremost typically is financial. They, it's a trillion-dollar business. They make, they, they get a lot of money, and they get, and it's paid in, in a lot of Bitcoin or other means, but it is millions of dollars, billions of dollars, right? Trillions, and so money is the big, big part, Dan. Uh, it, so all that leads up to, and they can get money in multiple ways. You know, they can get money. They can sell once they have access to the organization. They can say they can put it on the auction market and in the black market and the dark web, and say, okay, I have access to this system, this network, this organization. I'll sell it to you for this. Okay, and then so that's one way to make money. The other way to make money is to exfiltrate, upload as much data as they can, and then again sell it, whether it's customer data. Uh, network architecture data, whatever they they have, uh, intellectual property, they can sell that too. Where they're making most of their money is that uh, detonation of ransomware and demanding a, a, a ransom to be paid. So there's that extortion element. Well, oftentimes they like to make money at every step of the way too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not just there, they'll make money where they can. However, you know, the, the, uh, because our criminals are honorable, they sometimes, if you pay them the ransom, they won't necessarily release the data that they've exfiltrated because they want to be n known for keeping their word on uh, once ransom is paid. And so the, the, the other motivator, Dan, uh, outside of the financial is, uh, you know, is maximizing the, the impact or damage of an organization, but usually that still loops back to financial because the more impact and damage they can, uh, that, that they can, they can do the, the, the more valuable that, that extortion is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but there's also a, you know, there's governments that are out there, nation states that are funding hacking, which is uh, has a different purpose. Uh, some of it is still money like, like for, that is funding their countries or funding their programs. Uh, and, and that's FBI's reported on that several times that, you know, between North Korea and, and other places that they will use those funds to fund weapons programs. Um, and then there's also uh, intellectual property is another big part of that. China, you know, that's... China will, you know, that's a big part of, they don't hack necessarily for the money. They hack for the intellectual property. 
That's what I was just going to ask. Uh, in terms of sort of nation states and the sort of intellectual combat that's happening between uh, the United States, several countries in Europe, uh, China, Russia, um, and there's other bad – North Korea as being some of those sort of bad actors where some of this – uh, cyber attack is taking place and the ransomware is taking place is are we now playing at a, such a complex level because if if it wasn't a nation state that went after Vestas is there really much they can do to protect themselves because if you have the the the, the backing of a country coming against you as a company how how can you stop that well there's that's a great question Alan and the truth is is if they if if they really want to get to you, they they probably will. Now, uh, the the but the second part of the question, and this is what the conversation needs to change to a lot. There's there's the cybersecurity part of the conversation, and typically that is the the preventative. Okay, hey, let's put make sure we have our firewalls, our patching, our security in place. That that's kind of the defensive stance. Well, uh, at this juncture, it's a lot more conversa conversations going on around cyber resilience. Every organization needs to plan to be breached. So uh, Vestas, you know, it's I can't fault them because everyone will have a breach at some point. There's, it's not, it, it is going to happen. And the question, though, is the severity. And what has that organization done to mitigate the impact of that uh, cyber event or cyber breach. So one of the things uh, from the news reports was that, you know, Vesta said they, the incident didn't impact wind turbine operations and really just was kind of in their internal system. So, you know, when you think of like a cruise ship or like the Titanic, like they all had multiple hulls, right. in all these ships. So if they have, if one of them breached and that, that section fills with water, the other ones are still watertight and the ship's not going to go down until, you know, maybe, I don't know what it was on Titanic, but X amount, when X amount of the ship was breached, it was going to sink no matter what, right? So do companies have that sort of segmentation? I mean, you know, if you're to hack into some employee of Apple, do they have a way to just like sort of isolate them right away and say, all right, you know, these couple of people, this small team was hacked, but the rest of us were okay. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, that is a good question, and that's I really like that analogy. The yes, any the Titanic's not the, not the best one because they had a lot of hulls. They all, <laughs> they, you know, we know how that, Titanic that went down. still sunk, didn't it? Titanic still sunk. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, any uh, operation, mature organization needs that whether small or large needs to have isolation and segmentation as part of their strategy. Uh, segmentation between departments. Between key operations, between data silos, there needs to be multiple layers there. So if one uh, component is compromised, there's a barrier so they can't just so it's not flat and they can't just have free reign of the of everything within the organization. So that is essential and a part of a good strategy. Yes. But I was wondering, is the Titanic maybe it is a good example because I mean. Um, it, it, they had so many, you know, so much redundancy. It was supposed to be unsinkable, and yet, obviously, it did sink. Is it the same with companies and um, cybersecurity? Like, is it actually possible to ever get to a point where it's impenetrable, or do you think that it's always going to be, you know, a, a matter of just kind of 
making it as hard as possible and limiting the damage that can be done inevitably once once an attack happens yeah no that's a another good question another question because it uh, and the reason i like it because it's we need to change the mentality around cybersecurity and cyber resilience because the you know it's it's not we're never going to arrive we're never going to get there you know, and and it's always uh, going to be a journey. And, and in the we haven't and, and the challenge is we haven't had to deal with this so much in the past. So it's it's a new adaption of uh, a way of thinking and how we approach things. And that means establishing continual controls and processes within organizations, not from a not just a technical standpoint, but from an operational and executive standpoint on managing risk. And managing business risk, and then looking at how technology uh, 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 it can impact that that business and organizational operational risk. So it it needs to be thought of as something that we're evaluating on a regular basis, and that's why the tabletops uh, and uh, reviewing plans regularly is so vital. Because I the, I'll give you an example of uh, of a great response of a company that was breached and that was the firefly a year or so ago i can't remember the exact dates and uh and and interesting how that transpired or how we found out but their their response was so good and handled so well not from a just a pr standpoint but from a uh, executing on their incident response plan that their stock shot up and it was they were their 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 clout their reputation increased substantially because of how they responded and it wasn't a little breach this was a big breach where where their some of their primary tools were stolen and and it was a but it was interesting because that's when the the little thread started that took us to the solar winds breach and when and when it was learned and and announced that solar winds had a massive breach. You know, I'll give you an example. Like with with COVID in the last year, we figured out quite a lot in the last eighteen months, right? About how to how doctors were treating patients. Um, obviously, medicine and vaccines came such a long way in a short time. Like you could see just how the human species learned how to deal with this really quickly. Obviously, there's been a lot of cybersecurity incidents in the news in the last two three years as well, and they've been increasing. Um, you know, what, what has improved over that time? Are we getting better at this? I mean, are the, is the damage less significant? Like I remember, I think earlier this year, the FBI recovered a significant amount of the crypt, the cryptocurrency that was paid. I can't remember which ransom that was, but you know, they paid out X amount of dollars and they got about, they like sort of stole it back. Um, I mean, what, what's the current state of, of these cyber attacks and the responses now? Well, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot happening. Uh, I think it was about six million dollars that they did recover in that example, Dan, that you're giving. Mm-hmm. And uh, was that out of like ten, maybe, or something like that? I think like yeah, they got a, big, I, a majority of it back. I think yeah, if I remember right. So there's there's multiple things that are going on right now. One, the attacks and ransomware, for specifically, is still prolific. It is unprecedented, and the stats are just still going up, skyrocketing so, really fast. So it is still happening rapidly. Uh, but what is now occurring is that it is uh, a lot more on the forefront of uh, legislature. Of, I mean, President Biden even threw out a mandate around uh, the cybersecurity 
I, I, that was instigated, I believe, by the solar winds breach and how that impacted all the uh, government agencies because a ton of them were using solar winds. I mean, heck, even just a couple of weeks ago, FBI, it was announced that FBI's email was was hacked. So it, it is prolific and it is happening more and more regularly. Uh, I, the difference is twofold. Here's what's going to impact things. Because I don't feel like individual organizations and companies have been changing or implementing the necessary uh, parameters that, that they should have at a fast enough pace because there's no accountability, typically. There, a lot of time, there hasn't been a lot of inspection or accountability or, eh, yeah, I checked that box off on a compliance. But compliance and cybersecurity is not the same thing. You know, and, and most organizations, they're worried about some compliance oversight. They'll check the box there, but that doesn't mean they're secure. So uh, there's going to be a lot more federal and state laws that are going to not only mandate uh, cybersecurity for uh, contracts, government contracts, uh, but it's also going to go into the private sector. Uh, because what will happen is, is if there is an event, there's also going to be a lot more teeth and penalty when uh, something does happen. And, and we're already seeing that in Europe. We're seeing that in, you know, it's starting to happen in the United States. California has more privacy laws. Uh, so there, there's a, a significant uh, level, a level uh, not a level, a lever or catalyst or whatever you want to call it that's going to push that uh, so people take it a lot more serious. The second thing is insurance. Uh, because now that damages are occurring and it's costing businesses money, you've seen a massive shift in the cyber insurance world. Well, a couple of years ago, companies, insurers didn't even really know what cyber insurance. Well, they're like, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll insure that. Sure. Let's create a policy. And do you have a firewall and do you have antivirus? Awesome. You got cyber insurance and it only costs this much. Uh, and they were thinking it's going to be an easy way to make a few bucks. Well, now what's happening is cyber insurance companies are – the pendulum is swung so far the other way. They're asking some pretty deep and intensive questions that a lot of these organizations, companies are having to say no on. They're like, nah, we don't have that. Oh, we don't have that too. Oh, my gosh, we don't have that. Oh, my – you know, and then it starts making them think, well, shoot, I can't get insurance coverage because I don't have any of this stuff. I'm not doing any of this stuff. And or their policies are super expensive because they don't have that stuff. And so that's forcing the conversation kind of like uh, kind of like seatbelts, right? Seatbelts a uh, long time ago. What drove the need for seatbelts? Was it uh, were the automakers by in their good faith and, and because they are good people put in seatbelts? Eh, I think it had to do more with legislation and insurance. And, and we're going to see a similar track with uh, with cybersecurity and cyber resilience. Yeah, so I was just wondering, do you see it more as like an opportunistic thing or is it strategic in that certain types of industries are going to be more and more targeted? Because, I mean, we are obviously paying attention to what's going on in the energy industry and it seems it seems like there's a lot in the energy industry. And do you think that that's because that's kind of, you know, I mean, even in, in war times, that's a, a strategic thing to try and take down and has a big impact. Do you think that that's intentional or is it? just that the energy industry has um you know like poorer 
poorer security or maybe it's just that what we're paying attention to? Well, I think it's a little both, a little, little bit of both. Uh, uh, it's the, it's going to continue to escalate. We're going to see bigger uh, bigger notices in the, in the news, uh, ha- breaches, hacks, ransomware. It's it's going to continue to happen because as as we use technology more and more, uh, there's going to be vulnerabilities all over. Uh, you know, continue to be vulnerabilities. I think strategically, it's a target because it has such a f- substantial impact, right? Not just uh, financial, but you know, when it comes to power and other utilities, it has serious uh, impacts on our daily lives, on our ability to live and operate. So I think it's a similar motivator as they target hospitals and large organizations because it is, it's life sustaining. So are you saying that that sort of constrains them to like, hey, we can't be out, like we can't fight these guys for seven, seven days. We need to get back online tomorrow just pay it and be done with it is that is that kind of what you mean it drives the price of ransomware higher right so they can ask a bigger dollar amount and the probability of them getting paid is higher because of the urgency of the situation absolutely Mm -hmm. and and as far as the targeting utilities uh, the the reality is a lot of the systems that are there are antiquated and there are, we can put in layers of defense. We can do other things around hardening the security, but whether it's software or hardware, there is there are systems that are just they're they're old and they get outdated quickly. And because of the continued innovation, uh, it might be outdated by 12 months or 24 months, and then they stop development of those things that were deployed two years ago and they stopped development of it, that means there's no necessarily no patching, no updates, no additional resources put into uh, securing that, whether it's the hardware or software or uh, those elements that operate the machinery or systems. So doubling back to to wind, and of course it's not you know as much wind specific, but obviously you have the ear of a lot of uh, wind insiders here through our podcast. If they're at home kind of going, Ugh, we don't want this to happen to us, what should be the three to five steps that they should they should be taking right now? Well, I think the good news is a lot of the, you know, the wind is, uh, they're f- required to uh, follow kind of the SIP-NERC uh, framework, which lays out a lot of the processes and protocol and procedures on what's expected of power generating uh, groups or organizations and facilities. So, you know, a lot of them have, they're farther along than the general public because of the requirement around um, NERC-SIP. And uh, so the for my counsel would be to, to look at not just the cybersecurity mindset, but the cyber resilience side of things, because it has to be understood and accepted that there will be a breach. Because two years ago, the conversation was more, okay, you got to prevent an attack. Well, yes, you still have to do that. However, now what we need, we need to be asking more questions about when it happens, what are we going to do? Where's our biggest vulnerabilities? Where's the biggest impact? And have that as part of the regular conversation, not it's, and not say, oh, well, that's the IT director's job. No, that's that's the 
directors or the executives or the CEO's job. It needs because one of the challenges is in the past has been that there has been no C-level conversation around cybersecurity or cyber resilience. So it needs to be at, in discussion with business risk, operational risk, that cyber resilience needs to be part of that conversation and not just hand it off to the IT or cybersecurity guy or groups. So to make another pop culture reference, yeah, since it's Christmas season, <laughs> Home Alone, like they're going to break into your house. Do you have the paint cans ready and the nails <laughs> in in the steps? Do you have the the, the pine, you know, the tar and the feathering to really get these guys good once they're in your house? You know, am I hearing you correctly? You know, you, you, yeah, you need to have a plan. You need to talk about it. What are you going to do if it's that can of paint? So you know, if it's the marbles or the uh, the pickup jacks on the floor on the floor, be it whatever it is. You know, get make sure you have a plan so you can execute it. You know, there's, um, I, it means simple things like, how, you know, when when something happens, when do you have to report it? When do you have to go to regulators? Or, and and who's who's responsible to take these steps? Whose job is to do what? Have that clearly defined, and uh, you know, and so and then in the event, you know, how quickly can we get back up and going? All these things need to be. And again, uh, the, fortunately, they have a framework which they can follow, which is the NERC SIP, and there's a lot of helpful information there. Uh, but I've also found, just like the, uh, the, the fire drill that I've done with my family and my little kids, it's amazing how many things that we overlook until we're in there doing it. And it's like, my six-year-old kid? He can't get a, he can't jump over that or he can't pull that screen off or he's too small. He can't even open the window. You know, that's a big deal. And would I have thought about that until we'd done the drill? Uh, you know, maybe not. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I can recommend is there's, uh, you know, like we have an incident response plan that we've put together for Technologize, and I'm happy to share that with anybody who would like to, to take a look at it. We also have samples of incident response plans for uh, in the that follow the NERC SIP framework as well and tabletop plans and uh, forms that we could easily share with any of the listeners. Happy to do that. Uh, it is uh, it takes a lot of time and effort to put those together. And even if you have a template, you still have to make it yours and put some time and effort into it. So it sounds like the human element is just as big a, a piece of this as the actual cyber tools and having your you know, your digital systems in place. It sounds like the, the, the people are, are really a huge part of, like you said, not only the protection, but the resilience. Yeah, and that you nailed it, Dan. That is a the the piece that is most looked looked over, right? Is the easy thing to do is a couple of things. Uh, wow, we need cybersecurity. Let's hire somebody. Let's hire a hire a cybersecurity specialist. Okay, now we got a full time cybersecurity specialist. Check that box, you know, or or oh man, we need this for cybersecurity. Let me buy this tool. Okay, we got this tool you know, EDR or something like that. All right, well, we got the tool checked out. That's not cybersecurity. The cybersecurity program is what, you know, is the human element. It's the processes, it's the systems, it's the workflow. How do we, uh, how do we handle that? 
Well, for those of you listening out there, we are going to link uh, in the description or the show notes of this podcast uh, to where you can find some of those downloads from uh, from Byron and his company, Technologize. So if you do want to follow up with him and take him up on his offer, uh, that'll be easy. So just click through in the podcast links. Uh, Byron, so where can people follow up with you? I know you guys are on YouTube, you're on social media. Um, give us some places people can uh, can follow up. Yeah, technologize.com. Spelled with a K, and my email is Byron M at technologize.com. Anybody can reach out, and then I'm also on LinkedIn. Easy to get a hold of me there, Byron Martin, and uh, those are the easiest ways to get a hold of hold of me. And I can easily point somebody in the right direction uh, or answer any questions. Or I talk to folks all the time, and I'm happy to do so, even if they have just some questions or want to pick my brain. Definitely take them up on that. And like I said, you'll find that in the show notes below. Byron, thanks so much for coming back on the show with us. This was great, really timely uh, discussion. And obviously, we wanted to get your opinion because this is one of those, you know, it was a major breach of a, a major OEM. And so it's a big deal in, in wind. So thanks for coming on with us. Hey, no problem, Dan. Happy to be here. Love to participate anytime. All right. So let's jump back into offshore. So, Rosemary, uh, there was some new legislation just recently passed in Australia that's going to sort of pave the way for some offshore projects, most notably the Star of the South project, which is a 2.2 gigawatt uh, project that will bring power to about 1.2 million homes in the future. Uh, it looks like this will take six to 10 years to develop. And it'll be a big one off the coast of Gippsland. Did I say that right? Probably yep. wrong. I got it. No, Man, Gippsland. One Correct. for one. Good job. <laughs> Good job, me. Um, so, Rosemary, take us through this. Obviously, uh, you are our Australian expert. Um, what does this mean? <laughs> and how excited are you for offshore in Australia? I'm really excited for offshore in Australia. And I know that there was some suggestion that uh, I was not excited for we'll offshore go in to Australia. The tapes. But that's, you yeah. said <laughs> we have a lot of land. We don't need the ocean. But maybe we, no, we, heard, maybe we misheard you. Yeah, because people say to me all the time, non-Australians especially say to me all the time, um, why do you need offshore in Australia when Australia is full of, of land um, and it's not very um, densely populated and there's a lot of land that you can't do a lot else with, you know, in a productive sense, obviously. It's, um, you know. So, yeah, this is the first. Um, there's, there's several projects kind of in somewhere in the, you know, in the pipeline um, for offshore in Australia, but this is the first one and it's the one that's really um, trailblazing, I guess, and that's like really what they're doing. And then this is what this uh, announcement about the legislation is about. It's, you know, we've never had an offshore wind farm before, so we don't even, um, we don't have all the regulations that, you know, to get planning approval, there is no, you know, list of things to, to check off yet and so this is um, the first step for that so it's uh, needed for star of the south but also every other project that follows so what's notable about the legislation i don't think that there's anything notable about it except for that it um there wasn't any and now there now there is some so i haven't heard anybody i haven't read it myself i don't don't enjoy reading (laughs) government legislation like as a rule but i haven't heard anybody comment that there's you know anything bad about it just everyone's like okay now this now this exists and we have a, a framework that we can we can work with um and i know that where star of the south is at now they're just in the they're still in the feasibility phase they're still doing their environmental assessments um that they'll need to support planning and approvals and i'm assuming that this legislation is you know what they're going to have to meet to get their approvals. So I know that they're still, um, yeah, that 
I think the earliest possible construction start date is 2025 and it's not expected to come online um, until uh, the end of the decade. So it's a, it's a long time in the works. And I mean, I know offshore projects are always a bit complicated, but I, I'm expecting that this is harder because it's the first one and that, you know, once we've got this one, we can maybe bring more online faster. I've been watching the Australian prediction of onshore wind and there's a lot of onshore wind projects running through like 2030 that are scheduled uh, all over Australia. So there's going to be a lot more wind in Australia in the next 10 years than I think a lot of people realize. And then the, the offshore piece is just going to explode it. I think that maybe maybe where a lot of this goes and where a lot of the money goes because of the, the obviously the benefits of being offshore and maybe some of those off, onshore projects won't happen. They'll just move them offshore. Really interesting dynamic that'll happen. Yeah, it's really interesting space. And I actually am about to head to a wind energy conference in in Melbourne next week, it'll be yesterday by the time that this uh, podcast gets released. So I'll get the full update then. Maybe next time I can, uh, we can talk about that. But a lot of the onshore projects, um, that you, I assume you're talking about the huge ones have got all these giga projects announced yeah. that are just like mind bogglingly huge. And they're prime, yeah, they're primarily associated with exports, mostly, um, exporting hydrogen or ammonia. And then there's the, the sun cable project. Actually, I'm not even sure that that one has. Um, wind, it might just be solar, but I don't expect that all those are going to be, um, you know, you announce the full maximum amount that you might ever, you know, eventually get to after, you know, 20 years of development or something, but they don't, they don't build it all at once. They build it in slices and, and it really depends on hydrogen exports of most of those large onshore projects. So we still don't know how that's going to play out if, you know, people are going to be wanting to buy a lot of um, hydrogen that's been either converted to ammonia or liquefied and transported to Japan or Korea. Let's, we, we've got to, someone's got to buy it in order for someone to make money off building the, the wind farm. So we're going to move on uh, still sort of in the offshore um, wind sector, but here's some tech. So X1 wind, uh, they are now testing their pivot buoy, which is a floating offshore prototype. Uh, they unveiled this over in Spain. Alan, what, what's so unique about this pivot buoy system? I mean, is this thing meant to sort of bob in the ocean? Like you'd think of like a, a like an actual buoy or is it, I mean, it sounds like it's going to be still moored into the, into the seabed, but what seems to be unique about this, this prototype from, uh, from X1 wind? Well, they're using the wind to point the, the turbine into the wind, uh, and it only has a single cable down to the seabed. Uh, so it lets the turbine drift around and, and, and get augered into the wind for maximum power, which therefore reduces the complexity of all the systems in the wind turbine. You don't have to do yaw control so much. It's just always pointing into the wind. So you can actually save yourself some manufacturing and, and, and uh, money uh, on just the systems that are installed. I think the question is, and if you look at uh, the aerodynamics of when you start grouping wind turbines together, particularly in the ocean, and they start to do bob up and down a little bit, there's a lot of weird, unique uh, aerodynamic pieces that happen with that that are just now really being looked at. And the, and the question in my mind is, if you're only anchored in one point, it does seem like it's going to bob a little bit. And your, your, your weight, uh, basically the turbulence that's going to come off the wind turbine is going to be unique. And the, one of the questions, Rosemary, uh, that I see pop up is, 
What does that do to the blades? Are we going to load the blades up unevenly and put additional stresses that we wouldn't normally see on an onshore wind turbine? Yeah, I mean, you've picked out the the number one thing because, I mean, until about the 1990s, people hadn't really decided whether large wind turbines should be um, have the rotor upwind or downwind of the tower because um, downwind orientation it's got it's got a few advantages one is you can make it self-orienting and a lot of small wind turbines are still downwind designed for that reason but also the blades can be um, more flexible because the wind's obviously blowing it away from the tower so you'll never get any tower strike but every utility scale wind turbine that you see now is an upwind design um, and that is basically because of what you said because if you have the blades downwind of the tower then you um then every time the blade passes the the tower, it's in the shadow. And so, you know, it's um, being blocked for the wind for a portion. And so you have a sudden change in, in loading and it can accelerate, um, you know, fatigue damage. So yeah, it's a, it's a structural challenge. And, um, I think it also might have some, um, impact on the power quality that, that comes out of it. So that's interesting. Um, I do see often, like really often, um, especially onshore in small wind, people uh, are talking about self-orienting wind turbines and it's one advantage that people raise time and time again with vertical axis wind turbines that they don't um, – yeah, that they don't need a yaw system, that they, that's self-orienting. And I mean, I really just think that that's like a, a, a solution in search of a problem. I, I never hear any, <laughs> any issues with, um, wind turbines, yaw systems. I mean, I, I saw some pictures from, you know, about a hundred years ago and they had this like wind turbine and then it had like a, um, it was tethered. It um, had like guy ropes kind of. And then that uh, was like a big truck and on wheels and it's your system involved, like driving this truck around. And, um, you know, that's how they were yawing a wind turbine a hundred years ago. And I think people have this idea that it's still really, really hard to yaw a wind turbine. But uh, I mean, I don't want to take credit away from the engineers that designed the yaw system, but it's, I don't think it's that hard or at least they have solved the problem in a really good way. Let's, let's give them credit and say that they have done a, you know, an excellent job and this is not, not that big a problem. Maybe offshore, it also adds, um, they see some potential to make the foundations, um, cheaper if they only have the single point. So I'll, I'll, I don't know, but maybe there is more of a reason to do it offshore. But yeah, I did think that this project was interesting though, because I've noticed that they've started out, like I really like their development process that they're going with. Um, it, it, you know, it's like the way that I like to develop projects where, you know, you take your, your biggest risk and you try that out as soon as possible. So they, um, they have a small scale turbine. They've just taken an off the shelf. Um, I think it's a, a V29, a small Vestas, um, wind turbine mounted it on their unique aspect, which is the, you know, the, the boy. We, we don't say buoy, buoy in Australia. They always say boy. Um, we use that word to refer to young human males in America. But, but what yeah. about the word buoyant? Do you say buoyant? Good it's point. All right, you got me there. Yeah. Rosemary yeah. one, Dan zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one all at least. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, they're trying it out as fast as possible. They'll, they'll quickly learn from this what challenges they need to solve and whether their, you know, the unique selling point is actually plays out the way that they expect. So I actually thought this was a really, really well, well executed project, which basically means that they've done it the way that I would have. <laughs> that's a, that's a good, rare, rosy, just beaming seal of approval. 
This is exciting. <laughs> that might be a first here for the Uptime Podcast. <laughs> wow. Well, well, well done, uh, X1 Wind. You've, you've really taken the day here. Um, so <laughs> last on the docket, uh, more environmental uh, action uh, on behalf of uh, wildlife. So the Save Right Whales Co- uh, Coalition is, uh, again, threatening lit- litigation and filing litigation um, against offshore wind here in the U.S., um, you know, and of course, Nantucket residents in general are unhappy about the Vineyard Wind Project and others. Um, Alan, do you see this being a pretty major challenge? I mean, what one scientist is saying is that he doesn't see that this is going to really come, um, that there's, he doesn't envision any real trouble here uh, as far as the right whale population, just based on the wind farm's construction, how far the turbines are spread apart, which, you know, they're a mile apart. So he doesn't see that there's going to be a big concern. Is this just more more environmental litigation for the sake of litigation? Or do they have a point here trying to just, you know, urge for extra caution? Well, I think Massachusetts in particular has been very concerned about the offshore wildlife and has done a number of things over the years to prom- promote, protect uh, whales and all kinds of seals, all kinds of species off the coastline. Now, I guess the question is, is there really a threat and how are you going to mitigate it? If you do put wind turbines out there and there is some unique uh, aspect that we haven't thought of, that's the, that's the noise, it's the turbulence, whatever that affects the whales, uh, mating habits, swimming habits, feeding habits, you name it then you're going to have a real problem on your hands. And so I think it's good to, to raise the issue now. I think the, the one piece of this, which is a little more unique, is that Michael Schellenberger is is in the, in the middle of it. And if, and if you haven't looked up Michael Schellenberger, he's, he is uh, sort of a climate activist on like on the Greenpeace side at one point, and he's kind of switched over into, hey, renewables, some portion of renewables are not going to be as, shouldn't be as promoted as they are. There's other technologies. Uh, nuclear is, is one area he's pushing in. So some part of this is about the animals and some part of this is about policy. And you can never really tell where they separate, but you can definitely know that if they can be used together to make an argument, they will. And then we've seen that numbers of times. Uh, the question is, will Massachusetts, which is now heavily invested in wind and is a, as a state, is a, be a big proponent of the Biden administration. Uh, they really can't back down, right? They've, they've been making a lot of noise about renewable energy for a long time. And if these projects offshore wind don't happen, there's a lot of political turmoil that's going to happen. So the whales are going to be caught in the middle. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, we're going to, the wind turbines are going to happen, but there's going to also going to see a lot of monitoring and tracking of whales as they come in and out of the area. I think that's definitely going to happen. And um, we just don't know. Nobody knows. I Maybe mean, this is all new territory. So, and I, I think Rosemary is going to see the same thing when offshore happens in Australia, you got all kinds of major critical sea life that we don't know. We just don't have any idea. Yeah. I mean, people often talk like there hasn't been any environmental assessment here. It's not like this is these are the first people to say, what about the whales? I mean, that True. would have been included in the initial approvals. Um, and it's not the first time we've installed something in the ocean. I, I mean, there's been the suggestion that we should be using 
nuclear and natural gas instead. But I mean, any kind of um, offshore exploration, oil and gas exploration, I mean, that, that's not impact free um, on the ocean either. So I, I do find it strange that um, you would want to kind of turn away from wind and go um, back to more oil and, and gas, um, which to, to me seems much more risky for marine life, you know, the risk of an oil spill. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, they're also, they are being rolled out gradually, at least at first. It's not like we're going to have, you know, thousands of offshore wind farms installed this year. There's been a few over the last decade and they're, um, you know, gradually expanding and they're being monitored to find out if there are any, um, any unexpected impacts on all kinds of marine wildlife. And that's really the only way it can happen. I mean, how do they think that we're going to study the impact on, on whales if we, um, never, build anything. I think the prudent thing to do is to move forward cautiously, keep and, uh, you know, actively look for, um, unexpected impacts and then, and then balance them. Um, because, uh, you know, whales like, um, every other creature on earth doesn't want a planet that's five degrees warmer than it is now. So, um, yeah, we've, <laughs> I, I think that the way that things are pro- proceeding is, is the right way to do it for, for, all of the creatures on earth, including humans. <laughs> yeah. And this article from the Cape Cod Times, it was pretty balanced on both sides. And that's kind of one of the, the ending uh, statements was that, look, one thing we know for sure about right whales is that they don't like climate change like any other creature. Right. So like we know at the end of the day, like at least that aspect aspect of it, which you said, is good for them. So let's not say that this is all deleterious and harmful. Because the main goal is obviously in line with, you know, protecting wildlife. So, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to, again, follow up with Byron Martin, our guest. You'll find uh, his uh, additional resources and contact info in the show notes below. And be sure to sign up for Uptime Tech News as well as subscribe to Rosemary's YouTube channel, uh, which you'll find in the show notes. Thanks again. We'll see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.